life. Last Sunday, Skip Taylor preached a wonderful sermon on the greatest of all commandments, that we were to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. And so the context of that question, which was made by a lawyer, uh, is given for us in a story that Jesus told. Jesus uh, had a wonderful way in meeting people. It, it astonishes me to go through something like the Gospel of John and see him deal with a great theologian like Nicodemus in chapter 3. And then in the very next chapter to deal with a woman who's been married five times at the well of Samaria. And then deal with a poor paralytic by the pool at Bethesda. And then to deal uh, with all sorts and classes and kinds of people. The marvelous way with which he could move in and out among people and not have any hang-ups that kept him from a ministry to them is something which should speak to our hearts. And so, if you have your Bible and you would like to follow the reading, turn to Luke chapter 10 and ask the Holy Spirit to impress this lesson on your heart. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Now that word test there, let me explain a little technicality, is pareo. It's the same word that's used when we say, lead us not into temptation. Do not bring me to the test that's too great for me. This man is testing Jesus. Teacher, he said, and we might rather expect that this man would be a very well-educated person. He is not a lawyer in our sense of the word of a counselor at law in the state of North Carolina or wherever, but he is a specialist in scriptural law. He is a person who will have all of the first five books of the Bible committed to memory. He will know the Pentateuch by heart. And there are many minute laws there. And on top of the written law, he will also have many oral traditions that uh, have accrued to it. And so this is, he is a religious person. Uh, and uh, he is a specialist in the law. He is uh, a scribe and a Pharisee of the same thing. People who write down the law, they were laymen, they were not paid clergy but they were people who really knew uh, the Bible. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. Does anyone here feel like you've done that? Then he adds to it. Thank you, honey, you're right. Uh, <laughs> and then he adds to it. And your neighbor as yourself. That's the clincher. And so this lawyer, realizing that he has put Jesus to the test, but has been, is about to be tested himself. He thinks he's clever. He's given a beautiful summary, a compilation of part of Deuteronomy and a part of Leviticus. And so he says to, uh, Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
but the lawyer knows he hasn't done that. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, he's going to hook Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went off leaving him half dead. And by chance a certain priest was going on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite also. And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. And a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, take care of him. And whatever you spend more, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, that's the lawyer. <laughs> Notice he won't even use the word Samaritan. He hates him so much. The one who showed mercy towards him. And then the thunder clapped. Jesus said, go thou and do likewise. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Let's bow in prayer. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the abundant freedom which we have in this land. More freedom than we really deserve and more than we often know what to rightly do with. We thank you for the opportunity we have this day of worship here and for the great privilege which is ours of bringing a part of what you've entrusted to our use and setting it apart to a sacred task. We pray, God, that you will take hold of this money and see that it goes to the right causes and the right places, that it will bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ, that it will bring help to many in his name, that it will be, do nothing but good, that it will only bring glory to you. And we pray that you will take our lives and do the same with them. And now that you will make the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts to be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. A few weeks ago, we began to look into the Bible at some contacts that Jesus met, some people that he came into contact with. And today there is a very special person that he contacts, and the man happens to be a lawyer. And lawyer-like, as I explained a moment ago, he wants to ask a question about the law because he was always preoccupied with studying the careful details of the law. And the law of God is good. As those of you who are members of this congregation will know, a few weeks ago I tried to explain to you the meaning of the word Torah. Torah is a very sacred word to a Hebrew. 
It's a very sacred word because its root word is rock. And it has to do with guidance from God. A foundation like that upon which we sung a moment ago. Our rock is Jesus now, for he fulfilled the law perfectly. But he did not mean that we were to lose sight of the restraints that the law puts upon our lives from doing evil and the encouragements that the law brings us to do right. I am a country boy and I've always carried a pocket knife. I always get stopped at airports. And uh, uh, the, the word comes from rock. And remember, Torah is a rock. And it is to teach us to walk in the right place if it were a cool day. And if you were on top of Mount Mitchell, and it were foggy and misty, as it often is up there, then it would be helpful if you were walking shrouded in fog to know what was in front of you. And one way the Hebrews had of doing that would be by throwing the rock. And if they heard the rock hit, they knew that something was up there. They got so good at it that they could even tell how deep the soil was or whether it hit another rock. And it was very useful if they didn't hear any sound at all. Uh, and that's sort of the way we are in the world in which we live now. We don't hear enough sound of the rock. Uh, and so we are in a world uh, where things happen that are not always good things because we've gotten away from the law. On March the 6th, in New Bedford, Massachusetts, in Big Dan's Bar, a young married woman in her early 20s walked in to get a package of cigarettes. She stayed there and saw a friend and thought she would have a drink. Suddenly a man jumped up and stripped her, and on top of a pool table, she was allegedly raped continuously for two hours. While the crowd chanted, out a way to go. And they made rape a spectator sport. They're Portuguese, you say. Oh, come off, honey. All of us are something. Portuguese usually have a better respect for their women than we Americans do. The thing that's incredible is that anyone who's ever been in a bar knows that there was a gun under the cash register. There was a telephone there, and yet for two hours people did nothing. You tossed a rock out and nothing came back. And we seem scandalized by this lack of involvement or care on the part of many people. So the lawyer really asks a great question. We need to be guided by truths from God, not set loose on a relativism that lets us do anything. This week when a congressman in both a, a, a liberal, a Democrat from Massachusetts, who by the way was from the same town, New Bedford, is corrupting a 17-year-old boy through homosexual practice and stands up in the house well and says there's nothing wrong with his activity, it's his own business. That's the bond that breaks. Come off of it. What does the Word of God say? 
What does the law of God say? We had a psychiatrist here last Sunday who gave his testimony, who is one of the most distinguished psychiatrists in America. He told me in my office that one of the difficulties in tracing down the dreadful disease of AIDS was that the average homosexual who had it had 60 homosexual partners in one year. And so you see, when you get away adrift from the rock, you get into all kinds of trouble. This does not mean that we are not to show compassion and love toward those who uh, have fallen into that sin, but we are to show them that there can be a new life in Christ and a liberation from that and a redemption, not sprinkle holy water on it and call it okay. When you get away from the rock, you see men's hearts grow cold, and Jesus will illustrate it in a few minutes when he tells the story. That's why in 1938, there could be a meeting in beautiful Avion in France. I was thinking this week that I was there a few years ago at Avion myself. Beautiful place, loaded with flowers big hotel. There was a meeting there and there were 32 countries represented. Hitler had sent a secret delegation to say that he didn't really care to kill the Jews, that if the 32 countries would each agree to take 270,000 Jews, that uh, we, he would get rid of them in the countries where he was at that time in Austria and Germany, and that that would be it. But the weather was beautiful and the people wanted to play golf and they wanted to go up to the mountains to ski. Golda Meir made a speech in which she dramatized the plight of the Jews. But the world passed by on the other side. The United States delegate sent there by President Roosevelt said that we would accept the quota that was allowed in the immigration, which was 27,500. No more, no less. That's all. Since then, we have had millions of refugees who have come to the country, but then we wouldn't even save. And so Hitler, four months later in his Gestapo newspaper, said that the bleeding hearts of the West, with their squeamishness about the Jews, really didn't care any more than he did. And so he had a final solution to the Jewish problem. Now, I've said that because when you let go of the, the, the laws that deal with God. Skip said last Sunday, no other gods, God alone. If you make another God, if you do not reverence his name, if you do not seek to worship him and to bring your life under the guidance of the rock and the law, then in the fifth commandment, the representatives, the father and mother, we will not reverence. In the Sixth Commandment, we will kill a touch more abortion, a touch more pornography, a touch more of this. But we are not happier. We are more miserable. We have gotten away from the law. Then you steal. Then you lie. I have a responsibility to God to tell the truth. You have a responsibility to God to tell the truth. 
You take other people's property, you take their character away. The, the law even forbids the inordinate desire for other people's things. We are not to covet because that leads us to that place. And so those are things that this lawyer has much in mind and it's good. So we believe in keeping the law. Now then, the lawyer, when Jesus puts him back on his own question and then tells him, the lawyer says you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then Jesus says you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But willing to justify himself because he knows he hasn't done that, he says, and who is my neighbor? And now here comes the, the beautiful, beautiful punchline because the story begins to flow. Jesus said a certain man, evidently a Jew, going down from Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho is down there on the Dead Sea, 1,700 feet below sea level. He fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went off leaving him half dead. This is the first kind of person he runs in. And in a, a famous sermon that, well, I think it was actually a dramatization on BBC a few years ago. There was a, 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 a play on this parable. And Scotland Yard sends out some detectives. And the detectives come out and they see uh, where this terrible uh, assault has taken place and they notice on the sand there that uh, the sandals leave certain footprints and uh, on some hobnail boots they figured these must be the robbers and you know how people have those little slogans on shoes or tires and so forth with it left embedded in the sand according to Scotland Yard's version what's yours is mine I'll take it that's the philosophy of the robber. That's the philosophy of bestial activity in Big Dan's bar in New Bedford. That's the philosophy that destroys a 17-year-old boy's purity. That's the philosophy that destroys a 17-year-old girl's purity by a so-called leader of the land. That's the philosophy that takes away integrity What's yours is mine, I'll take it. So the law is good to protect there. But then listen. Jesus said a certain priest was going down on the road. And when he saw him, the priest saw the wounded man. He passed by on the other side, just like we did at Evian. Just like the people in Big Dan's bar. Just like the television cameraman who went out to film a man set himself on fire. What's happened to us? Enough's enough. God will draw the line. And he's drawn it. Here comes a priest. And the priest sees him. I've often thought about this. He had distinctive garb like I've got on and the poor guy, if he was, didn't have his eyes knocked out or caked with blood, he could see the 
clergy coming. And he thought, oh, there's a man of God. Whew. I'll have help. A reverend is coming. Don't be fooled <laughs> by a reverend. Uh, I can remember when I was a young preacher boy over in Scotland, they, they told me that I had to wear a clerical collar, and I never had worn one before, and I had to go to a Starks on the Bridges, the store, and buy a clerical collar and a waist stock and uh, put it on. And uh, because they said you either wear it or you don't preach one or the other because they thought it was a disgrace to go in the pulpit without it. And uh, I wanted to preach, so I got the thing. And I put it on, and I remember it seemed like every beggar in Edinburgh spotted me in the railroad station, and they knew I was an American because of the cut of my clothes. And uh, they knew also that I was evidently uh, a clergy because of the collar, and they all came to me. And you know what I found myself doing? This man saw him, and he passed by on the other side. I found myself looking the other way. When I'd see a beggar coming, I'd look the other way, or I'd read my newspaper, or whatever I was doing. You ever see people do that in church? They get mad at each other. Many will go out this door and go around there to keep from running into someone going down the aisle. They can't stand to look at the person. This is a priest. That's, that's the way we are. I'm that way and you're that way, but we need that look. And one of the interesting things in Matthew 25, Jesus says that in the last judgment, one of the things that will occur is that God will hear those who are condemned saying when did we see you hungry or naked or wounded or in prison and did not do anything in other words we looked the other way we need to make ourselves face up to our responsibilities for Jesus the Levite comes next and that's not a preacher in blue jeans uh, the Levite is a man who's more technical uh, in the law. He knows it. The Levite comes, and uh, uh, I think he must have gone a little further in looking at him. Uh, the Levite uh, goes over, and likewise a Levite. We stepped up higher. He's got a DD. Also, when he came to the place, he saw him. And he passed by on the other side. I think he must have looked over and said, Oh, poor soul and poor body. Uh, he saw him all bleeding. But you know, there's a key verse here. It says that he was half dead. And if a Levite touched someone who died, he couldn't go in the temple for six months. He would be ceremoniously unclean. Maybe he thought, what if I put that guy on my back and tried to do something with him, and he died on me? Wouldn't that be awful? I couldn't go for six months to the temple? Anything I touched would be defiled? So he goes by on the other side. We can make excuses for not helping, but thank God. And, you know... This Levite, by the way, is not a Pharisee or a scribe. The man who asked the question was a, was a lawyer, a scribe, or a Pharisee. And uh, the Levite and the priest, they represented the paid clergy. And uh, 
Uh, I think this Pharisee must have thought, oh boy, isn't that just like those Levites? He didn't like them anyway. And those priests, I knew they'd leave the man lying there. And now he's going to say that a Pharisee came and helped him, came and helped him. A lawyer helped him. But that's not what he says. He says a certain Samaritan. And when he said that, that word Samaritan, that really got him. A Samaritan would be about as popular as Yasser Arafat's at a meeting of the Knesset. Uh, Yasser won't speak there very often. And neither will Menachem Begin address the PLO. Uh, you, you, you won't find that. So the Jews had no dealing with the Samaritans. In fact, in chapter 9, just before this, James and John wanted, uh, Jesus was going to go through Samaria, but because his face was set toward Jerusalem, a Jewish place, the Samaritans sent out and said, we don't want you coming through our town. And James and John made the interesting suggestion that they call down fire from heaven and kill all the Samaritans. Now Jesus, when he preached his first sermon in, in Nazareth, he made people so mad that they wanted to take him out and push him off a cliff. And none of the disciples suggested that fire come down and destroy all the people in Nazareth. In Capernaum, where he had a similar incident occur and they picked up stones to stone him, no one wanted to call down fire and destroy the people in Capernaum. But the Samaritans, uh, they didn't care about anyway, and so they would call down fire and destroy them. So Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of his story. A certain Samaritan was on a journey and he came upon him and he saw him. He looked at him and he felt compassion for him. That's a deep feeling that comes from the heart. When Estelle Brousseau, one of our Bible teachers who uh, got the Teacher of the Year Award and Tom Starwalt, our great pianist and, and organist, were playing that lovely, lovely hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee. I know thou art mine. Can you say that and mean it? For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, it's now. If we did, then we wouldn't have to find excuses for sin or excuses for evading our responsibility. We would do the things the Lord Jesus teaches us to do. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him and bandaged up his wounds. He poured in oil to soften the hurt. And he put wine and antiseptic on them. And he put him on his own beast, and he went limping along beside him, and he took him to a, an inn. And then it says an interesting thing. He took care of him. It would have been very nice. He didn't just walk in and flip his master charge over and say, you guys take care of him. And, put it on my bill. But it says he stayed up all night and took care of him. You don't find many people like that. You don't find many people like that. He took care of him. And then the next day, he took out two denarii, that was two days wages, and he gave it to the innkeeper and he said, you take care of him, I've got to go on. And whatever you spend more, when I return, I will repay you. Innkeepers get to be pretty 
uh, crusty people. They deal with all kinds of folks that come through. But I'm sure that innkeeper thought, man, I've never seen a Samaritan like this guy. He helped a Jew. I know he'll pay me. He's different. And so the man can leave only part payment and know that he'll get the rest of it. When I return, I'll come back this way, and when I return, I will repay you. And then Jesus turns a noun into a verb. The man had asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, who neighbored the man that fell among the thieves? And the lawyer wished he had never asked this question. If you ever ask a question and wish you never had asked it, this lawyer wished like everything he hadn't asked it because the lawyer had to answer. He knew the conclusion. The one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus hit him like a bolt of lightning. You go and do likewise. I put in our bulletin today, I remember years ago reading a book, Religion in Shoes, by Brother Brian of about Brother Brian of Birmingham by Hunter Brakeley, Harry Bryan's uh, dear father. Not long ago, they rededicated a statue of Brother Brian in Birmingham. And some newspaper man summed it up very beautifully. The Reverend Dr. James A. Bryan is a difficult person for our secular age to appreciate. Birmingham's too young to have known, Birminghamians too young to have known him may have picked up that he was only a pious, eccentric do-gooder who ran a soup kitchen and knelt on the sidewalks of the city to pray. But to anyone who cares to dig below this superficial knowledge, Dr. Bryan emerges as much more. He is called mostly by journalists the patron saint of Birmingham, and he does seem to be a saint, if by saint it is meant one whose single-hearted devotion to God turned accepted values upside down, one who calls forth goodness in others and who trains at virtue for the glory of God. With the same intensity and the same uh, in, uh, that we expect of the Stallions, that's their football team, to trade for athletic glory, Brian was fixed on Jesus Christ. One of his last statements was reportedly, all I want is a heart full of Christ. And he conscientiously chose to live his Christ-centered life in a particular way. The way he chose was actually to take no thought for tomorrow. Like St. Francis, he led a practical life of poverty. Not that he disdained money, but he refused to own anything in a final sense. Jesus, to him, had a full claim on his life, his money, his clothes, everything. Since he was married, this included the goods and the security of his family. And then down at the bottom, because I have to go on. His co-worker, the outstanding Methodist layman, Harry Denman. I knew Harry. I saw him last time in New Delhi, India. He was as bored as I was at the World Council. Once uh, he said he did not come to Birmingham to open minds. He came to open hearts to Christ. Brother Brian had chosen the best thing in Birmingham to build, which was a life, a life in Christ. That's Brother Brian of Birmingham. 
We've got them in Montreat. We've got people in Montreat who go to the hospitals. John Hillsman, who made that prayer this morning, Jim Skidmore, who was up here, Rob Robinson, who is a contractor, were out at the Juvenile Evaluation Center where they go to teach a Sunday school class earlier, going through the Gospel of John. We have ladies who go to the hospital and teach those who cannot come out of the hospital. We had a young man, we have a, not a young man, we have a man in our congregation who is a retired minister who almost got killed with a 14-inch butcher knife out at the juvenile evaluation center by a big man, a big boy for his age, who had stolen a butcher knife out of the kitchen. And when our Bill Wood of our congregation was leaving one of the cottages, he stuck it against his throat and told him to drive him to Wilmington or he would cut his throat. One man out there has been killed. Bill told him that he, he would not drive him to Wilmington. But then Bill thought quickly. And he said, but I will take you to Asheville and I'll buy you a bus ticket. Something clicked in the dim mind of that disturbed man and Bill got him into the car and drove him to Asheville when they passed Swannanoa he talked him out of the night when they got to the bus station and they got out to go in Bill got the knife and locked it in the trunk of the car and then when he bought him the bus ticket and got him on the bus he called the police so that they could pick him up at the next bus stop and secure him from doing any harm to anyone Bill's son, it may interest you to know, is professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. He told that story not long ago to a group of people at Harvard. And when he told it, he ended it by saying these words about this good Samaritan in our own group here. He said, you know, we surgeons have to wash our hands and wash our hands and wash our hands to see to it that sterile conditions exist. If we don't, a patient would die from germs. But he said, my father was not afraid to die. My father was not afraid to die because his hands are clean. He has been to the cross where Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid the price for all his sins. Now there is no discrepancy between our living a life that demands the grace of Jesus for our salvation and we're clean and unafraid of death. And a life which also means merit that we work to show our love for Jesus day by day, not working to obtain salvation but working out the salvation which has already been worked in us by the cross in a terrible, terrible thunderstorm. A young man by the name of Augustus Toplady ran to find cover in the cleft of a rock. And when he was inside that rock, he remembered how he had heard a preacher say, 
that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It had been in a barn in Ireland that he had heard that sermon. And the big cave that he went in sort of reminded him of the barn. And he wrote out the words, Rock of Ages, the Lord Jesus, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Remember this about this parable. It's very important to remember it. The key to it is this. We have to bear in mind that Jesus answered the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? Not what must I do to be saved, but who is my neighbor? And my neighbor is anyone who needs my help. All of these people that we've talked about in the beginning who have broken the law and are out of it, they should be objects of God's compassion and love too. And we should show them that love. But we can never do that until we go to the cross and from that cross have our own sins forgiven and our lives transformed. That's what all of these men, from Brother Brian to Bill Wood, would have told you today. Let's conclude our worship by singing the first and last stanzas of 271, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this hard parable which stings us just as much as it stung that lawyer so many years ago. Oh, it's so hard for us to take and to feel at ease. Just as hard as it must have been for him. Lord, we thank you for the good news of this parable. We thank you that this parable shows us how much we are worth even if we're anonymous and on the road half dead, that you care for us and that our Savior loves us enough to seek such people. Lord, we thank you that this parable shows us how much we're worth. We are thankful that thou art the Samaritan, thou art willing to be the outcast in order to redeem us, and so we pray that you will help us to show your love by giving all that we have and are to you. We cannot hide in ourselves, but we thank you that we can hide in the cross of Jesus. And if any person here today has not made that commitment to him, help that person somewhere, sometime this day, to write down that Jesus, who paid it all, is to be the Lord of all their life. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.